continue uh, making our way through the book of Acts. If you're, uh, whether you're visiting with us this morning or not, uh, we're kind of uh, picking up in uh, kind of a stretch of Acts where things don't, things don't always seem to go exactly the way you might think they would go. And I think, uh, you know, we as people are kind of prone to think, like if things don't go like the way we imagine they're going, like something is wrong. Like things, things aren't necessarily going to plan, and through this spread, next spread in Acts, when there's you know opposition to the pro- proclamation of the gospel, I think it, it's important to remind ourselves uh, that Acts doesn't really begin with Acts. You know, Luke wrote the the Gospel of Luke and the Acts kind of as as one continuous story, and everything that we're going to read about happening today had, uh, you know, 40 or uh, almost 50 years earlier been kind of predicted in Luke chapter 2 when the baby, Jesus, is brought to the temple for his dedication. Uh, The prophet Simeon, a a godly man who had been told that he would not die before he saw the Messiah, is given Jesus for dedication and and holding Jesus. Uh, He says... Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The the opposition uh, we read about this morning, I think in one sense, is definitely a part of the plan of God. And so I want to continue on uh, where we left off in the narrative of Acts, Acts chapter 13, verse 44, and read about uh, the continued progress of the gospel. But even as the gospel progresses place to place, there is strong opposition to the work of the Lord. So if you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. There we read, Next Sabbath, Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up by persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to 
Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they left it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are indeed great. And your, uh, you have every perfection. And God, in your excellencies, your greatness is manifest. God, you uh, demonstrate uh, your greatness to us. God, in the salvation you extend to us in Jesus Christ, in your faithfulness, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, and your power being displayed in our weakness, God, in the way that you are transforming each of us into Christ-likeness. God, again and again, you display your greatness in our lives, and Lord, even as we turn uh, our eyes to Acts this morning and see how you've displayed your greatness in the past, God, we are Reminded that you are a God who does not change. God, uh, you are a God intent on accomplishing his purposes. And God, by your grace, you've elected to do that through your servants. And so, God, we pray that we would be faithful in the work that you've given us. God, we pray that we would be awed by your greatness as displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that our hearts would be humbled before you. God, even as the old man in us tells us that we are great, God, we pray that we would be humbled, God, and marvel at your greatness. God, we pray that we would see that there is none like you, and that our hearts would be stirred to uncompromised worship. God, we pray that you would do this for your glory. God, we ask that as we turn to your word now, we would again be marveled by your glory. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Luke goes through this portion of Acts and uh, gives us a, a lot of things in very short order. And so at some points, you kind of have to fill in the details with uh, assumptions. And I guess from the outset, I should be clear, one of the things I'm going to assume is true, even though Luke doesn't tell us it's true, is that after everything we've learned about Paul and Barnabas to this point, there is absolutely no way they preached in the synagogue a Saturday a week ago, and then they just chilled in their hotel room until the following Saturday, 
and waited to preach the gospel again. Right? I'm, I'm assuming that from last Saturday to the Saturday we're at now, they've been pretty busy preaching about the grace of Jesus Christ to anybody who would listen. And in the market, maybe back at the synagogue, who knows where all they went, but I'm sure they've been telling people all about the gospel of Jesus Christ for a week. And now that a week has elapsed, and the synagogue's uh, invitation to them from the week earlier, come back and tell us more about this Jesus guy, has come. Right? They, uh, Luke tells us, uh, come to the synagogue, and almost the whole city is there. Right? Along with their inviting, presumably the people who responded in faith the week prior, had been telling about these guys, Paul and Barnabas, who are telling us all about the Messiah coming. His name is Jesus. You have to come here. And Luke doesn't tell us whether or not they were all able, or they're gathered out in the street in the synagogue, or maybe they moved to the amphitheater. Honestly, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the stage is set for a huge revival here. They have opportunity to preach the gospel to the whole city. But even as all that's happening, uh, Luke tells us that uh, something had been happening over the course of the week in the hearts of some of the Jews who rejected what Paul and Barnabas had said a week earlier. And when they see the crowd gathered to hear Paul and Barnabas proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, jealousy that uh, maybe had been growing takes root hard, and they begin to oppose Paul and Barnabas. They contradict what Paul and Barnabas are saying. They revile him, or they, they hate Paul and Barnabas, or Paul specifically. Uh, right? The as much as uh, some people have come to hear the gospel of grace, there are definitely others there set on opposing the gospel of grace. And before we get any further in the text, I, th I think uh, you know, this theme is going to kind of come back again a few more times in Acts, this, this jealousy idea, well, the Jews and jealousy. So I want to be really clear about what I think Luke means when he says the Jews. He's not talking about every ethnically Jewish person in the city. Right? We saw the week prior that some of ethni the ethnically Jewish people in the synagogue responded favorably to the gospel. They believed, and certainly those people aren't lumped into the Jews here. I think when Luke's talking about the Jews, he's talking about the leaders of the synagogue, people who have clung to their Jewish identity, they refuse to recognize who Jesus is, and they're set on opposing Paul and Barnabas. And just like these people are going to come back several times, this jealousy thing is going to come back several times. And I think it's probably pretty common for us to, to latch uh, like good or bad quickly on an idea. And for the most part, I think it's pretty common that we latch uh, jealousy, latch je jealousy and bad together. Like it's always bad to be jealous. And Acts is uh, definitely not, I think, condemning these people for their jealousy. I think thinking about jealousy as, as always being bad betrays kind of sloppy thinking. Uh, jealousy is clearly not a bad thing. Right? Jealousy, I think, uh, finds all kinds of good and right uh, representations or expressions, right? If you're, if you're married, I think there's definitely a sense in which you could be righteously 
jealous of your spouse's affection. Right? The Scriptures indicate to us that we should be jealous for the Lord's glory. Uh, the Scriptures actually tell us that God Himself is a jealous God. So certainly there is a sort of jealousy that's not bad, it's, it's good. Right? What the issue is here is not that jealousy is present, the issue here is what these guys are jealous over. Right? Like, what has inspired their jealousy? And Luke doesn't really get into it. I think through Acts, at times, we'll see uh, uh, the leaders of synagogues seemingly kind of jealous over their identity as Jewish people and the idea that these other people, Gentiles, could be included in God's covenant. That's, that's a bridge too far. Like, uh, they're jealous of their special place in God's plan. And I think there are other times where the religious leaders aren't maybe necessarily as jealous about their uh, identity as Jewish people, but they're jealous of their position of authority and leadership. And when Paul and Barnabas, or anybody else for that matter, comes in and starts preaching the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, right? they see it as a threat to their position as leaders in the community, and so jealousy ensues. Right? And I want to make that point here, I think, not only uh, because it, it kind of becomes important to understand some of the conflict that's coming in Acts, but also uh, pastorally, I think uh, it, it, it's wise of me uh, to caution you that the kind of jealousy we're seeing here where someone is uh, seemingly very threatened by what they perceive as a, a threat to their position or their influence or their authority is a clear mark of danger, like a uh, false teacher, right? That if someone is more jealous of their place than they are of God's glory, like, red flags should be waving and we should stop listening to that person. Right? That, uh, the, the jealousy we're seeing here is, is always dangerous. Right? Like, it was dangerous then, it is dangerous now. If someone is more concerned with their reputation than with God's reputation, that is a big problem. But I think it's especially a problem for us, and a problem for us probably in a way that it wasn't a problem for them, because it's so easy for us today to listen to people that we don't really know. Right? Like, the internet has made that insanely easy. And uh, the New Testament will warn us again and again that uh, we should weigh what we're being taught not only based on the content of what is said, but on the manner of living of the person who's saying it, right? That those two things can make false teaching clear to us. Right? The, the character of the person saying it or the content of what is being said. And when we are uh, listening to, on the radio or podcasts or wherever, when we are listening to people that we really don't know at all, right? It's dangerous. Like, it is dangerous potentially to be listening to false teachers without knowing whether or not they are false teachers. And I don't say this to dissuade you from listening to people on the radio or listening to people on a podcast, but to caution you in love pastorally that like you should never put both feet in on somebody that you don't really know. 
right? Like when you listen to somebody on the radio or you listen to somebody on a podcast, like be aware of the fact that you don't really know this person. We've seen this reality play out several times in the past decade where well-known Christian leaders, respected Christian leaders, end up doing or saying something that clearly marked them as a false teacher, but only after, for maybe a decade or more, people have thought of them as a trusted teacher. Right? And that does remarkable damage. Right? When someone is thought of as a respected teacher by so many people who don't really know them, and later they are exposed as a false teacher. And uh, in the same way that these people's jealousy uh, should indicate uh, to everybody listening whose side they're really on, uh, I think we need to be wary of this, and if we can't be a judge of whether or not someone is out to build uh, the name of Christ or their own brand, we need to be wary of that as well. But the, the jealousy here uh, prompts uh, a more evil, for sure. Uh, and as Paul and Barnabas see the situation, uh, they speak out very boldly, calling out, exactly what they see and what the consequences of this uh, situation are. They say, uh, we had a responsibility to speak first to you, to the synagogue, uh, but, or since, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And what they say to these guys definitely has a ring of finality to it. Like, they're done ministering to Jewish people altogether. From now on, we're Gentiles only. Yet, chapter 14, we saw, began with them going back to the synagogue in Iconium. So I definitely don't think you should take this as like, Paul's never going to share the gospel with a Jewish person again. He, he does in short order. Yet here, uh, they turn their attention from the people that they have been preaching to in the synagogue to the Jewish audience. And I think here also there are several conclusions that we need to draw. Uh, number one, and, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but I think it's important that you notice it here. Uh, since you thrust it aside and you judge yourselves unworthy, right? The, their response emphatically places the blame for this turning away from them on on them right like you've rejected the gospel the this the moral responsibility for this is on you and i don't think this was occasional i think that this is a rule that if a person rejects the gospel the responsibility for their decision of rejecting the gospel of jesus christ rests entirely on them that it is an act of human will to disbelieve the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ and uh, exercising a person's will in such a way has a definite consequence. It has an eternal consequence and here it has an immediate consequence. We're turning away. We're going to turn our attention towards the Gentiles. And I would suggest to you <coughs> excuse me, that there is a, a second Thing, uh, that we should recognize here in their, in their turning. And 
this is going to sound, uh, it sounds abrupt the first time you hear it, but I think it captures the sentiment here in a very succinct way. C.T. Studd once said, uh, nobody deserves to hear the gospel twice until everyone's heard the gospel once. And, uh, you know, as Christians, we, we preach the gospel to as many people as we possibly can, right? Uh, but the situation here, uh, and the situation we often find ourselves in, is we only have so many minutes in a day, and there are only so many words that you can say. And that uh, if I have the opportunity to preach the gospel to a person repeatedly, and it's not costing me an opportunity to preach the gospel to somebody who's never heard the gospel, then preach the gospel to the same person repeatedly. But as Christians, we have an obligation to see the gospel go to everyone. We owe the gospel to everyone. And if, in, if we fail to, to pay that debt to someone who's never heard the gospel once, because uh, we're hammering a person who by their own will has rejected the message of grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're doing an injustice to the person who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ once, right? And so when we think about like who we build relationships with and how we share the gospel, uh, there are certainly people in our life, co-workers, neighbors, family members, there are all kinds of people in our life that we will consistently be interacting with and it, it would never be inappropriate to share the gospel with that person more than one time because we're going to be seeing them anyway. But as we decide what we're doing with our time, if our uh, preaching the gospel to someone is at the expense of our preaching the gospel to someone whom we've never preached the gospel to, we should maybe rethink that decision. What we're seeing Paul and Barnabas do here is uh, say, your rejection of the gospel is prompting our turning to people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they defend this. Uh, they defend this by turning right to Scripture. Again, Paul and Barnabas remember who they're talking to, uh, and they point to the book of Isaiah. They, they say, this isn't just our judgment call. This is what the Lord intends. Uh, God has said, we are the fulfillment of this. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you can bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And surely as they hear this, they are seething, but the Gentiles respond to this with unmitigated joy. Right? They're glorifying God that he would include them and uh, that they would be a part of the salvation promised in Jesus Christ, right? That they'd been hearing probably for the Jews from some time that you have to do this and this and this in order to even be remotely included. And even then, you're going to be a second-class part of God's people, right? And now Paul and Barnabas are in the city saying, everything that needs to be done has been done for you by Jesus Christ. Simply turn from your sin and trust in Him, and you are wholly a brother or sister in Christ, a part of the people of God. And for the Gentiles, this is unbelievably good news. They are rejoicing at what is happening. And Luke makes it clear that uh, the ones who are rejoicing are as many as who were appointed to eternal life, that those people believed. And I think 
as much as you see in verse 46 that uh, the unbelief of those who've chosen to reject the gospel, they bear the moral responsibility for that. In verse 48, I think Luke is making it clear that uh, even as everything in this story seems to be like uh, the action of people, uh, right? Paul and Barnabas preach. Some people choose to believe. Some people choose to reject. At the same time, there is an unseen hand of God working to open eyes, to open hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This uh, we're appointed is a, a, a perfect middle, or a, <laughs> excuse me, um, it's perfect. He's saying uh, that with a perfect passive, he's saying that uh, God did an action in the past and it is continuing into the present, or its effect is continuing into the present, right? So uh, God is, um, God did something in the past that is uh, prompting these people to believe that God ultimately, beginning to end, is responsible for the salvation of these people. Uh, And that's, I think, part of the tension of this verse, is, uh, or this passage, rather, that God has to open a person's eyes, that God has to open a person's heart in order for them to recognize the truth of the gospel. And at the same time, that, uh, and that, that God is responsible for the belief of the people that responded positively to the gospel, everything about the story is indicating to us uh, that um, Paul and Barnabas boldly preaching the gospel of grace uh, leads to these people coming to believe, right? So you have these truths in tension where God is the one prompting belief, but the people in the passage don't come to faith apart from the clear proclamation of the gospel by other people. Right, And so, on the one hand, it's God, and on the other hand, what we're seeing is God working through these people to do it. And I want to I circle back to some of the implications I think there is be, between the, in the tension in 46 and 48, but uh, before we get there, I want to see what the effect is. Uh, the word of the Lord spreads. Uh, these people are opposed to the progress of the gospel, but they certainly can't stop it. Uh, the word of God spreads like a wildfire through the entire region, and as much as they might want to root it out, they can't. In fact, uh, they very much want to root it out. The jealousy at this point uh, prompts them to enact a plan. And the nature of the plan, Luke doesn't entirely explain, but we do know that uh, it was very common uh, for uh, women of high social standing, Gentile women of high social standing, maybe it was fashionable, to uh, attend the synagogue, though men typically didn't. So probably what's happening here is uh, the lead Jewish leaders of the synagogue convince the women of high social standing in the synagogue, the Jew or the Gentile women of high social standing, 
hey, oppose this preaching of the gospel with us. And those women exercise uh, their influence over the leading men of the city who probably did not attend the synagogue. Uh, but for any of you that ever been convinced of anything by your wife, like you can, you can understand what's happening here, right? Like uh, there's exercising influence and uh, the result is a persecution coming against Paul and Barnabas to the point that they're driven out of the area entirely. And so even as the gospel is spreading through the area, uh, Paul and Barnabas are driven out. And Paul and Barnabas' response to this whole situation is a pretty classic Jewish response, but kind of upended, right? Like uh, for a Jewish person, when you're walking out of Jewish or out of Gentile territory back into Judea, uh, you would shake the dust off your sandals, kind of signifying like that place was dirty, guilty. I'm done with that. I'm back where I need to be, right? And Paul and Barnabas are way outside of Jewish, uh, of Judea, right? They're squarely in Gentile territory, but they take this uh, Jewish practice of shaking off the guilt of everything they're just walking away from, uh, and they, they put it to use here. They, they say, your unbelief is on your own heads. We don't, we don't have anything to do with this, and we're not going to carry the guilt of this with us. We are moving on. And so they go uh, 90 miles kind of East, southeast to Iconium, to another very large city. And then Luke tells us that uh, the disciples, the people who came to belief there, uh, respond uh, filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I, I was maybe a little bit uh, convicted <laughs> about 52 this week, right? Like, I think a, a natural human response is to think about the things that you lost. These guys are days into the Christian faith, uh, and their response at losing Paul and Barnabas is not to think about the things that they lost, but rather to think about the gospel that they've gained. Uh, the, the example of these believers, I think, is certainly worth emulating. That uh, when you have Christ, what else matters? Like, who cares what we lose? We've gained everything in Christ. And the narrative goes on in Iconium, and, and in some ways, almost exactly the same thing plays out again. In fact, it's kind of kind of become a pattern that we see in Acts that uh, the gospel progresses, the gospel's opposed, and the gospel continues to progress, right? And so they, they get to Iconium, they again go to the synagogue, they again begin preaching the gospel uh, there, and both Jews and Greeks here also believe, uh, and just like uh, previously, some unbelieving Jews stir up the Gentiles, poison their minds, and attempt to corrupt the preaching of the gospel. Uh, and you would expect, I think, after reading what had just happened, uh, something other than what Luke says next, but he says, so they remained, right? Like it's almost like because of the opposition, they decide to stay, uh, right? They don't flee from the opposition, but instead they stay, they continue boldly speaking of the Lord's grace, uh, and in fact they are doing signs and wonders affirming the grace of the Lord. And Luke never explains what these are. Luke mentions, or excuse me, Paul mentions them 
and the letter uh, to the Galatians, this area, he says, remember the signs and wonders that were done among you, but like we'd seen already in Acts, apparently uh, miracles were happening that were affirming uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel continues to take root in Iconium, and the people of the city ultimately are again divided. Uh, some people uh, side with the Jews, and some people side with the apostles. And it might be easy, I think, to think about some people uh, that are with Christ and some people who are opposed to Christ, but probably we need to be careful about assuming that uh, everybody that sided with the Jews is definitely against the apostles in exactly the same sense. There are surely some people very much spiritually opposed to the progress of the gospel, but there is one overarching rule in the Roman Empire, and that is peace and order are more important than anything else. And so sometimes as we see leaders uh, attempt to punish the apostles, right, it might not so much be direct spiritual opposition to the gospel so much as seeing like this, uh, you know, infighting amongst the Jewish people or the synagogue as a threat to peace and order in a Roman city. And so uh, whatever, uh, whatever is truly motivating some people uh, to oppose the progress of the gospel, Luke says, ultimately there's really only two sides. You're either for the gospel or you're against it. Whatever is motivating you doesn't really matter. You're either with the Jews or you're with the proclaimers of Christ. And so the Gentiles, the Jews, and the rulers mistreat them. And they stone them or attempt to stone them. And when Paul and Barnabas learn of it, they again flee, this time uh, on to Lycaonia. Right? They're, they're going to get out of town, and uh, whether or not they didn't want to be stoned or they just thought things were getting too hot in Iconium and out of grace for the other uh, converts, they, they decide to leave. But as they go, uh, they continue to preach the gospel. They're not at all deterred. And like I said, you know, you, you essentially have two stories on top of each other, back to back, where there is definite opposition of the gospel and the, the sort of opposition to the gospel that a person could think uh, potentially is, you know, a sign of, God's favor not being with us, or God's hand not really being in this. But uh, you know, as Luke records everything that's happening, uh, he's not looking at what's not there. It's a real assessment of the situation, and he does not gloss over uh, the pain or the difficulty or the hardship or the opposition. But what he demonstrates very, very clearly to us is the gospel only ever progresses with opposition, right? Like, there is never progress of the gospel that is not opposed. And those terms, uh, like, the terms of the, of the contest here should not surprise us, right? That there is an enemy absolutely opposed to the progress of the gospel, and he will not pull any stop in attempting to crush it, right? That, that this has always been the case. I think it's common for us to assume that the sort of opposition to the gospel we're seeing today is 
new, and it's absolutely not. The gospel has only ever progressed with opposition. The opposition looks different age to age and time to time, but it is always opposed. Satan does not give ground freely. But more than that, I think, I want to go back to the tension between 46 and 48, where on the one hand, it seems like uh, this is happening as an act of human will, like Paul and Barnabas decide to go to this city and proclaim the gospel boldly, even in the face of opposition. Uh, Some people choose to disbelieve, and they bear the consequences of their choice, and other people choose to believe and inherit eternal life. And at the same time, right, that it was appointed by God from the foundation of the world. And and that's part of the that tension is part of the mystery of salvation. Honestly, that uh, even as Luke is putting the moral responsibility of disbelief on the person who chooses not to believe, like squarely, on the person who chooses not to believe, the credit for salvation, beginning to end, belongs to God. And honestly, wherever you're at in like resolving that tension, like whether you're very comfortable with it or, or very uncomfortable with it, I think if both of those things are true, then uh, there are, I think, some correctives that we all need to hear. Some of them very evident in this passage. Some probably, again, uh, my assumption. And I'd start with prayer. Right? Luke doesn't mention prayer in this passage once. But uh, I find it very, very hard to believe that Paul and Barnabas were incredibly prayerful through this season. Right? Just because Luke doesn't include the detail doesn't mean it's not there. Everything about Paul and Barnabas that we've learned to this point is they are very dependent on God's grace. And as much as we see in this text that God has a hand in bringing people to faith, I think it's important for us to understand that prayer is absolutely essential to evangelism, always, without exception. In, in any opportunity, in any opportunity, if our first response isn't prayer, we've gone wrong. Right? Like, whether you're, you're on the airplane and you're in the middle of a conversation before you really even realize it's a conversation about the gospel, if you don't stop and say a three-second prayer in your head, God, please give me the words to say now. Right? Like, you've done wrong. If you go through today without praying for somebody that you know to come to the grace of Jesus Christ, you've done wrong. Like, we have to be people saturated with spirit of prayer, longing for people to come to see Jesus Christ and expressing our dependence on God, our confidence that God changes hearts in prayer. If that's not true of us, then start today. I think it's, it's also very much evident in this passage that if somebody rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, the responsibility, the moral responsibility, is theirs. 
And I know I've said that three times, and you might think it seems like kind of an esoteric theological point, like does that really matter? Well, let me tell you very clearly why that absolutely matters. We all, whether you'll admit it to me or not, I'm absolutely confident that every single one of us has demurred on an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody because we have this haunting fear that we might not have the right words. Right? Like, I don't know if I can say what I need to say. Man, too bad an elder or a pastor's not here. They'd probably know what to say. Like, I don't know. Like, what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Like, let's be really, really, really clear about what's happening when we allow that to run us. Right? Like, we are consciously choosing to disobey a command of the Lord because of a fear that we ought not have. Right? Like, we're afraid that we are going to have some responsibility that is not ours. And we're allowing that fear to prevent us from doing what God has clearly commanded us to do. That cannot happen. Right? Like, we cannot be people who refuse to obey the commands of the Lord because we are afraid that someone might reject the gospel of grace. Ever. That should, that should never be found in us, yet we, it is constantly haunting us. We're, we're assuming something about the economy of God that is not true. If someone rejects the gospel, they bear the responsibility for that rejection, not us. But if we refrain from sharing the gospel when we have a responsibility because we might say something wrong, we sure bear the responsibility for that. And in, in an almost the opposite way, I would say that this, this truth very much has a, a profound impact on the way that we think about our own faith. Right? That I, I think it's our pride that leads us to think sometimes that, uh, well, I've, I've responded positively to the gospel of grace because you know, I'm so wise or I'm so righteous or I'm better in some way than other people. And if you ever catch your thinking self anything even remotely like that root that thought out and kill it immediately it's contrary to the gospel beginning to end the credit for salvation belongs to god alone when you when you walk down that road you are corrupting your own faith and We also, I think, have to appreciate that the, the salvation of another is God's grace working through our obedience. It's, it's not us saving a person. It's God saving a person. And we have a responsibility to preach this gospel to ourselves and to others as we've received it. It's God's gospel. It's not our gospel. We are 
stewards of something that we've been given, but it is not ours. We can't edit it as we like. We can't, uh, even with the best of attention, intentions, change it. We are not free to add to it. We are not free to take from it. Uh, even if we think that by stripping the gospel of some offense, we might make it more palpable, we do not have that freedom. The world is littered with people who claim to be Christians and are stripping the gospel of its offense, maybe with the best of intentions, maybe because they think that it will help others see the glory of Jesus Christ. But that is not our prerogative. The gospel is not ours. We're not free to add to it. We're not free to take away from it. It is God's gospel. Further, I would say that what we're seeing play out in this passage is very much Paul and Barnabas' understanding that God's grace is working through our obedience. Right? They're obedient even in the face of opposition and God works through their obedience to draw other people to Christ. But their boldness here, their confidence here is is definitely not uh, the kind of uh, sanctified pride that, uh, that like, well, these, these guys, they just do something that we're not able to do. I know that some of us aren't sharing the gospel because we have a very real appraisal of our own weaknesses. Like, I've, I suspect probably that I have as many or more weaknesses than anybody in this room. Our weaknesses have not escaped God's notices. My weaknesses certainly haven't. Yours haven't. Our weaknesses haven't escaped God's notice. God is very, very aware of how weak we are. He, he knows that we struggle to find the right words. In fact, He predicted that we would realize that. God knows that we lack courage. God is not asking us to be something that we're not in that way. God's not asking me uh, to find in myself some reverse, reserve of boldness that I do not have. God's not asking myself to, or asking me to find words that I don't have. God's not asking me to pretend like I don't have uh, weaknesses. What God is asking uh, is not for me to be something I'm not. What God is asking is for me and for you to demonstrate His power through our weaknesses. To have absolute confidence, trust that He is who He says He is. That He can do what He says He does. That He will work through our weaknesses. He will demonstrate to us, even though we know that we're unequal to the task, that the task can be accomplished by His grace and through His power. And even if we take all of that and say, okay, I think there's, there's one other thing that is just killing us that, that is evidenced here, and it shouldn't 
be deterring us at all. Christians are uh, people of feasts, or they ought to be. Uh, and there are lots of examples of, of Christians disrupting peace and unity unnecessarily. Uh, and there are lots of examples of Christians preserving peace and unity where there ought not be any. What they expected, what we should expect, is always opposition. There is going to be opposition to the progress of the gospel. If you're not facing opposition, it's probably because the gospel is not really progressing. Twice in this text, city after city, there is opposition to the gospel. As far as the gospel progresses, there is opposition. The gospel only ever advances with opposition. And, and we all, I know, we all fail to preach the gospel given opportunity because we don't want division and we don't want opposition. We, we all have that voice in the head saying like, well, I, I don't know that I'm going to preach the gospel to this person because I don't want to turn them off. Stop listening to that voice. Stop. It is not to be trusted. And I understand that some of us don't know each other all that well, and you, and you might not take my word on it, but that, that voice shouldn't be listened to. And so I, I thought that I would end today by reading somebody else. Jesus, talking to the twelve, Matthew chapter 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that very hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will raise up against their parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you've heard whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those that kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we repent. I repent. God, I... I'm aware of my weaknesses. I'm aware of my foolishness. God, I, I, I struggle to find words and, and uh, use all of these things to justify disobedience. God, we do this very thing. God, I pray that you would convict us. God, that you would help us to see our sin. God, not just in the things that we do, but in all of the things that we're failing to do and what those failures are costing others in terms of eternity. I, I pray that you will forgive us. God, I am confident that you will. God, we know that in the gospel of Christ, God, you have covered the sins of all who repent and believe. And so, God, we repent and we trust that you, in your grace, are transforming us, that you have dealt with our sins in Christ, that you are molding us into his image. And God, we pray that as you do this very thing, God, we would be increasingly confident in your displaying of power through our weakness. God, that we would boldly Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ given any opportunity, knowing that you will give us the words in that moment, God, knowing that you will give us the courage, God, knowing that we may be opposed, but this is your sovereign will. And God, we pray that in this obedience we would continue to be privileged to see the progress of the gospel, that the host of heaven may continue to grow God, until the throne room is full. God, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for the sake of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.